Good morning, church. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Right, let me get there. So we'll be reading from Matthew 6, 1 through 18. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and, and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their, received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we thank you for another day that wasn't promised to us, Lord. We thank you, God, for your word. And as we study... Your word, Lord God, open our eyes and our hearts to hear what you want us to, Lord, that your, your word may speak, Lord Father. Pray, Lord, that uh, as you speak through Mark, Lord, that your truth would be revealed in our hearts, Lord God. We pray and lift up the Sunday school, the kids, Lord Father, and the teachers, that you may bless them, Lord, and lead them in your spirit and guidance as well, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids are dismissed. morning.
So the more I study the Sermon on the Mount, the more I appreciate its amazing organization and unity. I pray that you will come to appreciate it more and more as we work our way through chapters 5 through 7. Before we do that, let's pray again. Father God, I, again, I thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can still in this country gather together and open your word in relative safety and that we can uh, be the church. We don't have to hide like so many people in the rest of the world. I pray, Lord, again, that your spirit would just fall afresh on all of us, that you would give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see, and that through your word we might be changed. Lord, we do um, all of these things to glorify you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our last study, Jesus describes the incredibly high standard of righteousness required of those who would be his disciples. He explained that it must be greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that it might be helpful to pause for a second here and define righteousness. So righteousness, according to the dictionary, is a behavior that is morally justifiable or right. Such behavior is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and uprightness. But there's a problem with this definition. This definition is reflecting human standards, and they change. They change from year to year, and from country to country, and community to community, and in our culture, they change from day to day and from person to person. Sometimes it seems like they change from minute to minute. It's not very helpful at all. The Bible's standard of righteousness, now, however, however, is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. These standards, as opposed to the world's standards, are immutable. They are unchangeable. And they are always just, even when we don't like them, even when we don't want to live up to them. Thus, God's laws, as given in the Bible, both describe his own character and establish the yardstick by which he measures human righteousness. And really, that's the only measurement that counts. Now, you'll remember from last week that Matthew 5, 21 through 48 focuses on the teaching of the law, what men believe. And Jesus focuses on inner moral righteousness, and he uses six examples, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, revenge, and love. In this section, he focuses our attention on outward moral righteousness, this section that we're studying today. And he uses three examples of religious activity, giving to the poor, our religion as it acts towards others, praying, our religion as it acts towards God, 
and fasting our religion as it acts in relation to ourselves. And just like chapter 5 is grounded in verse 20, chapter 6 is grounded in verse 1. Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So I, when I prepare a message, I, I always teach from the ESV uh, because that's the, the, the version that we use here at Calvary Chapel Buell. But I like to look at other versions. And I have to say I really like uh, the way the ESV translates the Greek word as righteousness. It talks about practicing righteousness. Now, spiritually, we already stand in the righteousness of Christ. If you are a believer, then you have put on the righteousness of Christ. But in our day-to-day lives, righteousness is not a state of being. It's a consistent motion, moving closer and closer in the direction of becoming more like Jesus. It is something that we need to practice. And it is, hopefully, something that we get better at the more we practice it. Righteousness is not in and of itself salvation, but it is evidence of a saving faith. In this section, Jesus warns us of a great danger, hypocrisy. We would do well in our culture today to spend some time thinking about hypocrisy because hypocrisy is all around us. To be his disciples, to be citizens of the kingdom, those who belong to him must practice their religion. And this practice must be genuine. It must come from the heart, not for the admiration or reward received from the world, but out of gratitude for what God has done for us and from genuine love of others. John MacArthur tells the story of an Eastern holy man who sat and covered himself with ashes as a sign of humility. He would sit on a very busy street corner in the middle of the city, and during the day, tourists would stop and ask him to take, and ask if it was okay to take his picture. And the holy man would allow them to take his picture, but before they took it, he would pick up his ashes and rearrange them, and, you know, scatter them afresh all around himself in order to provide the best picture of destitution and humility. I suspect the tourist slipped him a buck or two for his trouble. Friends, a lot of religious activity today is not much more than rearranging ashes. Rather than achieving humility, this kind of activity results in hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is simply an act. It's pretending to be what one is not or pretending to believe what one does not. For our discussion today, we are speaking specifically of someone who exhibits the appearance of virtue or religion, but bears none of the fruit. It's important that we recognize that hypocrisy is never treated lightly in the Bible. For example, in Amos chapter 5, 21 through 24, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. 
Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. All of these religious ceremonies mentioned in this passage, festivals, assemblies, sacrifices, singing, they had all been instituted by God. But God said, I'm done. I don't want to hear that stuff anymore. And he said that because the people were doing them insincerely and without righteous living. They performed these rituals not for God's glory, but for the admiration of men. They were hypocritical. And hypocrites are found throughout the scripture. Cain, Absalom, Ananias and Sapphira, and certainly Judas, are but a few examples. Jesus himself even identifies the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites. Speaking to them in Mark 7, 6 through 7, he quotes Isaiah and says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I think it's a good time for us as believers to stop and pause and ask ourselves, when we worship God, are we doing it out of reverence and awe for him? Are we honoring him with our lips but not with our hearts? And if so, that's something that we need to change. False hypocritical righteousness such as this does have a reward. The applause and recognition of other hypocrites and people in the world. But that's it. Jesus warns that fake righteousness will not earn rewards in heaven. When we seek the adoration of the world, I want you to think about this for just a second. When we seek the adoration and the applause of the world, what we are actually doing is stealing glory from God. Because everything we do should glorify God. And so when we seek glory for ourselves, we are stealing it from God. This unrighteous, hypocritical behavior will never result in God's approval. So Jesus' first illustration of religious action or what men do in this section is giving to the poor. Now, giving is our religious activity as it pertains to how we treat others. It's an outward expression of our love and our concern for others. And notice that Jesus does not introduce any of these teachings with if. He doesn't say if you give, if you pray, if you fast. He says when. And so implied in that, I believe, is that he expects us to do all of these things. And in this section about giving, he's referring here to actual good, actual giving, not good intentions, prayer, brother be warm and blessed and go on your way. When done in the right spirit, giving is an obligation of believers. Notice once again that Jesus first calls out the hypocrite. Matthew 6, 2 through 4 says this. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, let me just pause here. When Jesus says, truly I say to you, we probably should pay attention. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus' concern here is not if the giving, he's assuming that we're going to give, but his concern is how we give. Will it be done to win the approval of others? Sadly, much giving in this world is done for that very reason. Have you ever seen big charities where they have walls and plaques full of names of people who have given donations to that organization? They publish donor lists, and they have levels like lifetime member, president's club, gold level, platinum level. We see this all the time. We see it right here in our own community. I've seen several of these in Twin Falls. And sometimes it even shows up in the church. Want your name on the new school building? Or a gymnasium? Or perhaps the expanded chapel? Make a big enough donation and it just might happen. The reason for this is that the people giving want to be noticed. They want the glory and honor and sometimes the influence that comes from letting others know how much they give. Jesus called it announcing your gift with trumpets. That's New Testament speak for tooting your own horn. It's attention-seeking at its worst. And they will get attention. And they will get rewards on earth from other hypocrites and other men, but only on earth, not in heaven. The virtue of giving, Jesus says, comes from a heart of love for others, not to receive the praise of men. And there's only one way to avoid this trap, and that is to keep our giving quiet. D.A. Carson says this, the way to avoid hypocrisy is not to cease giving, but to do so with such secrecy that we scarcely know what we have given. For years, I've struggled with giving. <clears throat> Should I give money to this person? Should I help the homeless guy? Well, they're only going to run out and use it for alcohol or drugs. But as I read the Bible, I don't see any place where we're told to ask those kind of questions. All I see is give. And so that giving still became a struggle for me. It was, it was, well, okay, I'll give, but I want it back. And, you know, I, I comforted my, myself by saying, I want it back when you can give it back, not I want it back by next week. That was how spiritual I was. But after much consideration and experience with giving of gifts, I realized that when I give expecting to get something in return, it 
energizes the craziness in my own mind and my own soul. And so now, when I give, I give if I see a need. I give if I have the ability to give. And I give expecting nothing back. My conversation to the person goes something like this. I'm giving you this money as a gift from God. And I do not expect it back, nor will I ever ask you about it again. If at some point you feel that you are required to pay me back, then come and talk to me. But otherwise, I will never ask you about it again. And that attitude for me is so incredibly freeing. I give and I'm done. And I truly don't think about it anymore. Now, having said that, I don't want you to line up and ask me for a gift today. <laughs> Unless you really need something. <clears throat> so earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, you may, you may be remembering, Jesus commanded in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, this verse is not in conflict with the teaching of Matthew 6. The question is not whether or not our good works should be seen by others, but rather whether they are done for that purpose. When they are done in such a way that glory and attention is focused on the giver, they are done hypocritically and self-righteously. God rejects such works. The difference is in the purpose and the motivation. When what we do is done in the right spirit and for the right purpose, it's an act of worship that glorifies God. This kind of worship is pleasing and acceptable to God. I'm going to give you an example of this. One year, we, our family was approaching the Christmas season, and I, I wasn't working. I was, we were barely making it on unemployment. At that time, we had five kids in the house, a house payment, a car payment, all the normal bills associated, and we had taken one of my son's friends in. We approached the Christmas week wondering what we were going to eat for dinner. Um, never mind buying a Christmas tree or presents for anyone. It just, it just wasn't going to happen. So we came home from church one afternoon, and the kids went in the house, and they came running out of the house and said, Dad, Dad, someone's been in the backyard. And, you know, I was in California, so I didn't immediately pull my gun. <laughs> but I immediately said, whoa, 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 everybody wait and let me go see what's going on. So I walked out into the backyard, and in the backyard were, I don't know, four or five totes, big totes, you know, the plastic totes with the lid on it. And leaning up against the house was a Christmas tree. We opened the totes, and each tote had two or three gifts for every person in the family, and the gifts were labeled with their individual names, including the name of the boy who was living with us at the time. You see, that gift blessed us beyond anything I can even explain, and yet to this day, we don't know for sure who did it. We have our suspicions. Not that many people knew everybody's name in the family, including the boy who was staying with us. But we don't know. This person gave out of the generosity of their heart 
because they saw a need and they did not ask for anything in return, nor did they look for praise or thanks from us. That's the kind of giving that Jesus is talking about here. One Bible commentator wrote, the greatest danger to reliving, excuse me, the greatest danger to religion is that the old self simply becomes religious. Why is that a danger? Because the old self is wicked. And a wicked religious self is of no good to God or the world. The old self needs a new heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this section. We need a new heart. We need a heart that seeks the glory and the honor of God, not the glory and the honor of men. Attention-seeking will only keep your heart hard. The principle is simply this. If we remember, God will forget. And if we forget, God will remember. Our goal should be to meet every need we are able to meet and let God keep records. Jesus' second example of religious devotion that can become insincere is prayer. Jesus treats this subject in the same manner as he does giving. He assumes that his disciples will pray. Matthew 6, 5 says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Again, we have that word hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, surely, you've heard prayers like this. If you've ever watched a televangelist, you've heard prayers like this. They are obviously designed to bring attention to the person praying. They typically use big words or, or King James Version and they affect a deep voice and, and, and extra large mannerisms. And it go, they go something like, Oh, Father in heaven, we beseech thee. You've heard that kind of stuff before, right? Nobody prays like that in private. <laughs> this type of prayer is for public display. It's for people to take notice of the man and not God. And like giving, it has its own reward. Just like giving with trumpets sounding. Jesus calls these prayers for what they are, hypocritical. Instead, he says, we are to pray privately. Verse 6 says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It is the quiet, personal, reflective, relational prayer that God wants to hear from us. We don't need fancy words. We don't need loud voices. We just need to speak to God for who he is, our father. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In this section, Jesus is condemning repetitious prayer. And we've all heard this type of prayer as well. They are often long, meandering speeches with no real point to them. About two or three or four minutes into it, you begin to nod off. And Jesus says, that's how the pagans pray. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. It says, and they took the bulls that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And then they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now these, these prophets are not praying to a real God. But the point here is they prayed over and over and over again from morning until night. And what they were really seeking was the recognition of men. Now don't misunderstand me here. God is not condemning long prayers. Jesus himself often prayed all day or all night. By the way, that just blows my mind. I, I wish that I could pray all day or all night. But what he is condemning is long, empty, showy, public prayers intended to make others think that they are humble and pious. They seek the praise of men rather than communion with God. And again, Jesus says they will be rewarded but only on earth and only by foolish men. It's like the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee stood up in the temple and prayed about himself. I can imagine that he did this sort of thing. He stood up and he held his arms up. I don't know this, but just from the text, it seems like he was being awfully showy. And he prays, and, he, and I imagine that this prayer was long and loud, and he talks about how much better he was than all the other people there. Other worshipers probably looked at him and thought, wow, that dude is so righteous. I wish I could be like that. But the tax collector, by contrast, stands apart from the others. In my mind, I imagine him back in a corner. And he beats his chest, and he says simply, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. By the way, there's a prayer we could all do well to pray from time to time. And Jesus said, the tax collector went home justified. He got his rewards in heaven. I'll tell you about the time I heard the best prayer I ever heard. I was leading a recovery group, and there were eight or ten guys in the group, and we had been together for quite a while, maybe 
six or eight months. So we knew each other really well. And, and it was my custom at the end of the, the meeting to ask one of the other guys to close in prayer. And as often happens in these kinds of groups, everybody would put their head down and, you know, open their Bible. <laughs> and I would end up closing in prayer. Not always, but often. And so uh, this one meeting, this guy comes in, never seen him before, didn't know his name. He didn't attend our church. Um, and he sits down, and he was kind of awkward. So imagine you're attending a recovery group for the first time. It's pretty awkward. But he comes in, and he's kind of bumbly and a little disheveled and, you know, not very well spoken. And he sits down, and, and he's quiet through the whole meeting. He does it. He never says a word. At the end of the meeting, I say, would one of you like to close us in prayer? And he says, I would. I was shocked. I had absolutely no idea who this guy was, what he was going to say, where he was coming from, nothing. But I said, okay, go ahead. So he puts his head down, and first thing he says is, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me strength to get through this, excuse me, crappy day. And then he proceeds to tell God everything he did that day. The prayer was long, but we were all riveted on what he was saying. And by the time he was done, we all felt like Jesus was physically sitting in the chair next to him. That's the kind of prayer that God is interested in. That's the kind of prayer that I wish and that I strive to do myself. Personal, relational, transformational prayer. In the next section, Jesus contrasts the way men often pray with how they should pray. This prayer is often called the Lord's Prayer, but I think it would be better described as the disciples' prayer. It's a model prayer, and Jesus did not say this is what you should pray. He said this is how you should pray. And we could easily spend several hours discussing this prayer. But I won't. And I think that sometimes even repeating this prayer can become repetitious. We need, when we say this prayer, we need to be thinking about it and and thinking about what it means and, and what we're saying and not just say it by rote. But it is an amazing prayer. And so let's pick it apart a little bit. Starting in uh, verse 9, it says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to honor. God's name describes God himself as he's revealed in scripture and creation. And therefore, to honor the name is to honor God. If you fear God, you will honor his name. You won't use it in vain. You will fear him and you will honor him. And we know from scripture that God has many names. So which one shall we honor? He is Elohim, mighty God who speaks the world into existence. He is Yahweh, Lord, I am who I am. He is El Shaddai, Almighty God. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, 
the Lord of hosts. And more, many more. But in this prayer, Jesus introduces him as our Father. Think about this for just a minute. What an incredible privilege is it for us to call God Father, the God of angel armies, the God who literally creates by speaking, the God who holds the entire universe together. What a privilege is it for us to be able to refer to him as Father. This was unheard of to the Jews. It was far too intimate. Jesus always spoke of God as his Father, and now in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells his followers to do the same, even to the point of calling God Abba, which is best translated as Daddy. the God of the universe, the God who creates, the God who controls, the God who forgives, the God who is justice, the God who is holy, Jesus tells us to call him Daddy. Our God is personal and caring. But we must never forget that he is also the holy and sovereign God who is in heaven. The God to whom we pray can be personal and relational, but we must never take him or his name lightly. Verse 10 builds on this concept. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray like this, we must be willing to submit to God. Daddy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer of submission. He loves us like a father, but Jesus reminds us that he is also a king with a kingdom whose will we are expected to know and follow. We are to honor his name, submit to his reign, and allow him to use us to accomplish his kingdom work on the earth. When we pray, your will be done, we are first act asking God that his will becomes our own. Secondly, we are praying that his will reigns over all the earth, just as it does in heaven. Halfway through this prayer, Jesus turns us from God's name, will, and kingdom to praying for our personal needs, life's necessities, forgiveness of sin, and deliverance from temptation and the devil. He starts with life's necessities in verse 11. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, in the U.S. today, it may seem silly to pray for bread. Some of us don't even eat bread or chips or cookies or pasta. Wait, I'm, I'm distracted here. <laughs> bread in the scripture not only represents food, it is symbolic of all our physical and spiritual needs. Martin Luther said this. He said, everything necessary for the preservation of this life is bread, including food, a healthy body, good weather, house, wife, children, good government, and peace. The God who created the entire universe, 
the God of angel armies, the mighty and powerful God who punishes sin and justifies the unrighteous. Infinitely holy, infinitely self-sufficient, cares about supplying our daily physical and spiritual needs. Blows my mind. This part of the prayer is in the form of a request. But I think it's also a declaration of what James says in, in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then, it's not just provision for daily living that we need. We are sinful creatures, and we desperately need forgiveness. Constant, regular forgiveness. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debts in this verse refers to sin. It represents a moral or spiritual debt first to God and then to those we sin against. Here's another thing I think we, should, we would do well to consider. When we sin, when we do something to hurt another person, we are first committing a sin against God. Secondly, we are committing a sin against our brother. And so spiritual debt is something we owe first to God and then to those we sin against. This is a sobering principle. Jesus says if we forgive, we will be forgiven. If we refuse to give, we will not be forgiven. We are to forgive for several reasons. First, we are motivated to forgive because of Christ's example. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving shows good judgment and brings peace. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Forgiveness frees you. Unforgiveness not only stands as a wall to God's forgiveness, but it also interferes with your peace of mind and your happiness. You become bitter and carry that bitterness into the lives of those around you, into the lives of those you love. And that bitterness takes root and it spreads and it becomes a real problem. Forgiveness is the only way to purge that bitterness. In the matter of forgiveness, God deals with us as we deals with, deal with others. The Puritan writer Thomas Manton said, There is none so tender towards others as they which have received mercy themselves, for they know how gently God has dealt with them. Before you get angry at your brother, I want you to stop and think for a second about how much God has forgiven you. Because when you realize, when it really sinks into your heart and mind how much God has forgiven you, you will understand how much you need to forgive and be merciful towards others. Forgiveness is so important that Jesus adds this postscript in verses 14 and 15. This is not part of the Lord's Prayer, 
but I felt like it goes here. Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, for the believer, forgiveness is not optional. Forgiveness is not optional. Forgiveness is something we must practice. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. The bigger the offense, the harder it is. Does it take time and prayer? For sure. The longer the offense went on, the longer it's going to take to forgive. But is it optional? Not at all. For your health, for reconciliation with your brother, for the health of the church, and for forgiveness for yourself. Jesus closes this prayer in verse 13. He says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this strikes me as an odd thing for Jesus to pray. That's one of the reasons why I think this is more a disciple's prayer. Jesus was not led into temptation in the same way we are. After all, James teaches in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Some say the word temptation should have been translated as trials. After all, we know that God uses trials to teach and mature us, and that may be true. Trials may have been a better translation. But when I pray, lead us not into temptation, it is my heart crying out over my concern that the power of sin is so great that I want to avoid every prospect of falling into it. When I honestly look at the power of sin and recognize my own weakness, I shudder to think how easily I can fall. This, for me, is a desperate plea from a heart for God to grant what we do not have. It is a plea to guard our hearts, minds, eyes, and body, and to deliver us from evil. Do you know what I'm looking for more than anything else when Christ returns? I'm looking for the release from sin. The thought of a new body is amazing. And I can't even begin to imagine what that would be like. But for me, my greatest desire is to be released from sin. When we will no longer have to struggle with the flesh. When we will live in righteousness with God in his presence. That's what I want. The final act of righteousness Jesus discusses is fast, excuse me, fasting. Verses 16 through 18 says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus assumes that his followers will fast, he says, when you fast, not if you fast. He doesn't mention how often 
we should fast because the, because the issue, again, is righteousness, our motivation and our heart when we fast. Like giving and praying, we are to do it privately before God and not publicly for the praise of men. If we fast before other people, we will have a reward, but it will only be from them. There will be no reward in heaven. Now I have to confess that fasting is a discipline I could practice better and not just for my waistline, although certainly for that. As I was preparing for this message, I I spent some time uh, studying fasting and I noticed that some very significant events occur while the disciples are praying and fasting. One of them, for example, was when Peter was fasting before receiving the vision of the sheet let down from heaven. It was that vision that led eventually the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. Fasting is probably more important than we give it credit for. One thing is sure. Jesus teaches here that there can be no right fasting without a right heart, right living, and a right attitude. So in closing, I want to turn to this, return to this idea of righteousness. Here's the bad news. True and perfect righteousness is not possible for us to attain on our own. The standard is simply too high. We cannot live the examples that Jesus taught in this section of Matthew on our own. The good news is that true righteousness is possible for us, but only through the cleansing of sin by Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have no ability to achieve righteousness in and of ourselves. But as Christians, as believers, we possess the righteousness of Christ because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is an amazing truth, and it's a, it's a truth that I take great comfort in because I got to tell you guys, when I get up and look in the mirror in the morning, I don't see a righteous man. I know who I am. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his sin, excuse me, exchanged our sin. Oh boy, I'm tired. (laughs) Jesus exchanged our sin for his perfect righteousness so that one day we can stand before God and he will not see our sin, but the holy righteousness of Jesus. This means that we are made righteous in the sight of God. We are accepted as righteous and treated as righteous by God on account of what Jesus has done. He was made sin, we are made righteous. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner. Though he was perfectly holy and pure. And because of that, we are treated as if we are righteous. Though we are corrupted and wicked. Because of what Jesus has endured on our behalf, we are treated as if we had entirely fulfilled the law of God and had never become exposed to its penalty. We have received this precious gift of righteousness from the God of all mercy and grace. And that deserves an amen. 
Now this morning, I want to ask you to do something a little different. I want to ask everyone to stand, and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together. The words will be on the screen. And when I finish, I'll close the service in prayer. Okay, let's begin. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Father God, we come before you this morning and we confess that our hearts are desperately wicked. We confess, God, that we sin daily and that we desperately need your mercy and your grace and your righteousness. We thank you, God, that these things are possible not through anything we do, not through any efforts of our own, but by the drawing of the Holy Spirit and by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God, we are broken people, but it is our desire to glorify and honor you in this place and in this community and in this state and in this nation. Help us, Lord. We cannot do these things on our own. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that your spirit goes with each one of us, that you strengthen us, you give us a hunger and a thirst for your word and for your righteousness. And Lord, we ask these things for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen.